Hello, all you adventurous aardvarks. Thanks so much for coming back for a, another week of A Little Greener. We're so happy to have you here listening. I am, I guess I should say what we do. <laughs> a Little Greener is a podcast all about nature, conservation, and sustainability. And I am one of your hosts. My name is Sarah, and I am joined, as always, by my fantastic, wonderful co-host, Casey. How's it hey, going, Hey, everybody. <laughs> Hello. It's going okay. You know, we're yeah. um, moving, starting new jobs, planning weddings, all of yeah. all of the things. So, uh, so my week's been very busy, but uh, as always, I'm happy to be here with you. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Also busy, uh, work things, trying to get ready to go sort of on a vacation. That's not really a vacation, but traveling uh, anyway. So busy as well. The Olympics are over. That's sad for me, but um, so yeah, just trying to get back in to to daily life. But yeah, uh, happy to be here with you as well. Well, I'm sad for you that the Olympics are over, Sarah, but I am excited to be here with you and I'm glad that we're doing this. And I have a question for you. What is your favorite food? Oh, that's a great question that I can give many answers to. <laughs> But usually what I say anymore these days is it's potato, <laughs> uh, potato in some form. I just had French fries. Potato chips are a staple in my household. Mashed potatoes, baked potatoes, tater tots. Potatoes are great, man. I don't know if I've ever met a potato I didn't like. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's a I'm good saying. answer. Yes. <laughs> and you can flavor them different ways. Yeah, it's a good yep. one. A lot of variety. What about you? I'm a pizza girl, which I think okay. you know. Also yeah. a lot of variety. Yeah. Lots of variety out there. I uh even just like I I love cheese pizza, which I know is like very basic, mm -hmm. but I love cheese pizza. And depending on where you go, it's gonna taste different and it's almost always gonna taste good. So mm -hmm. I am always down for pizza, probably too often. And uh my former manager, our former our, our manager, yeah. uh yeah would always make fun of me because I, I have this theory that basically everything is pizza. <laughs> okay. So for example, like the components of pizza are just like bread, tomato, and cheese, and then some sort uh -huh. of meat or something like that. So for example, like grilled cheese and tomato soup, pizza, it's got all the components. Okay. <laughs> Most Italian food is pizza. <laughs> That's uh, I feel like I have, I'll have a rebuttal, but give me, give me until next time. But maybe I would argue that so grilled cheese and tomato soup is one example, but outside of maybe some other Italian foods, I don't, I don't know that there would be a. There's a also lots of pizza shaped things. Anyway, there are yes. lots of pizza shaped things. Uh, shoot. I was going to say something. Oh, and they also say like, that's the food. Like if you could only eat one food for the rest of your life, you should choose pizza because it does have those excellent different things. The, the bread, the vegetables, the dairy, and the meat you can all have on your pizza. Just well-rounded meal, there both physically and nutritionally <laughs> love pizza. Uh, today we're talking about food waste. So even if you're having your favorite food, uh, chances are you might be throwing some of it out. And so today we're going to talk about food waste. And actually this is going to be our first two part episode. Woo! Woo! 
So, uh, so Sarah's going to Florida and we want to give her some time off. So hopefully this works out for us based on my internet connection and we get through <laughs> everything. So this first half of the episode, we're going to have a normal review from Sarah, and then we're going to talk about food waste kind of higher up, like at the beginning of the production chain. And then next episode, we're going to talk about what we can individually do about food waste in our lives. So stick around. We're going to be back with a review from Sarah. Welcome back, everybody. So my review for today is going to be another potential sustainable swap. We've talked about a few of those over the course of the podcast. In fact, I think my last review was also a potential kitchen sustainable swap. I talked about bees wrap. Today, I'm going to talk about another one that I've done in my own kitchen. We talked about in our bathroom episode, how bar everything was good. We talked a lot about bar soap for the bathroom, bar shampoo, bar conditioner. Well, you can also get bar dish soap and that's what I'm gonna review today. So I have had my bar dish soap. I meant to look this up, I think a couple of years now. I think I bought this back in 2019, I'm pretty sure. The same bar. And the same bar. How big is it? Is so, it like a bar of soap size or is it bigger than that? It's, no, it's bigger than that. Okay. So it's like a, a bigger thick rectangle, but like a small brick size. I don't know. I don't know how to describe it. Size is not my forte. It's so it's thicker than a regular bar, like hand soap or body soap that you would buy in the grocery store. So, but yeah, I've had this same bar soap for a couple of years and I got it, my, mine in particular, I got from a store called Bestowed Essentials that I think is in Wisconsin, uh, but they ship with environmentally friendly packaging and it is, a, you know, a small business. So I like to support those, but you can find your own kitchen bar soap wherever you like. So you can look around, but um, I do really enjoy it. So the Big benefit for me that I was looking for was to reduce plastic waste, which we've talked about. So it certainly does that. You can look in to the place that you're getting yours from to make sure that they're not wrapping it or shipping it in plastic. Casey mentioned one of the benefits uh, that she's found with some of the soap that she's bought is that you know what the ingredients are that go into it as well. And that's, I've, I've found that to be true here as well. This organization at least listed their ingredients. So I know, for example, that it doesn't contain palm oil like we've talked about before. But I, the biggest positive for me really has been that it has lasted me forever. I mean, I would go get it, Casey, and show you right now because it is hardly diminished in size, I feel like, since the time that I bought it. Now, granted, I do most of my dishes in the dishwasher, but for using these things, this for things that are not dishwasher safe, I just feel like I'm never going to have to buy dish soap again. And I'm somebody that hates spending money on stuff like that. I don't know why. It just, it's, irritating to I'm me. really bad at budgeting for that stuff. So I, I yeah. totally understand. It's like, ah, oh, toilet paper. I right. wasn't expecting $16 worth of toilet paper in my bill. Yeah. Right. And it's just like, why do I have to spend money to like clean my house and do the dishes that I don't like doing <laughs> anyway? Uh, so I do love that I haven't had to buy dish soap in a really long time. That's really nice. Uh, and it's super easy 
to you. So it's just this brick. And typically what I'll do, because I'm typically just washing a few dishes with it. So I just run the, get a wet washcloth, run that over it a few times and use that to wash the dishes and it works really well. Um, also, if I need to soak something, soak a pot or a pan or something like that, I'll just put a little water in it and just flake off a little piece with my fingernail, drop it in there. A tiny bit seems to be all you need. So again, I just, it just, it lasts a really long time. So it's really nice. Things to keep in mind though, if you're using it, that might put you off initially when you switch over is I, I don't really get a lather from it at all. So don't expect it to be sudsy or anything like that. Um, if you are filling up your sink or something like that, you know, and you would normally dump in your dish soap and get all of the bubbles and the lather, don't expect that. Um, so that's just something to get used to sort of mentally that it's not going to lather. And if you do let it sit for too long, whether you're soaking a dish or you're, you're filling the sink and put a little in there, I have found that it kind of develops like a film, mm -hmm. a sort of a filmy. And again, you can rinse that and wipe it and it's fine. Uh, but just some things to keep in mind uh, when you're using it. Um, other than those two things, I have no complaints. It gets the job. I mean, it's soap my dishes get clean. So uh, I fully support it. Bar everything is good. Um, the other thing I will say is I did buy a special dish for it. I got a little bamboo dish with some little Lots. drainage slots. Yeah. Um, the one that I bought, I don't particularly care for. I'm going to blame the dish more than the soap. It doesn't, it's, I mean, the soap hasn't disintegrated, so I guess that's good, but it does, it like sticks the, yeah. It gets stuck to inside. the dish and yeah. you have to like rip it apart forcefully. Uh, so just be thoughtful of what dish you're using. But otherwise, other than the, the getting used to those differences, I say go for it. If you're looking to become a little greener in your kitchen, get yourself some bar dish soap. That's awesome. I've always been curious about it. I've seen like people have to like cheese grate a lot of like I've, I've seen that yeah. kind of method. Um, but I'm someone who probably uses too much dish soap because I just like pop the Dawn upside down and just like a little gentle mm -hmm. squeeze. You've got so much blue stuff everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> how much do you do? I don't know, but it's a lot of bubbles. So that seems like a really great alternative. I'm glad you've been able to use it for so long. Yeah. Cool. Well, that's what I got. Thanks for listening. Stick around and we will be back with part one of our discussion on food waste. back everyone with the main topic of this episode, which is food waste. And if you can't tell, I'm pretty excited about it. Um, I've been thinking of doing this one for a long time. And one of the reasons I'm really excited about it is it basically applies to everybody. Doesn't matter really, you know, you're going to learn cool stuff no matter what, but this is, uh, something that I think we can all help tackle. So today we're talking about food waste, Sarah, why should we care about food waste and what are the environmental or other impacts that we have to think about with food waste? Well, I think you, I mean, you just mentioned one of the reasons that we should care. It, it does apply to all of us. We all eat, we all contribute to this and it impacts everybody. 
we've talked previously about how some of the things that we do for sustainability can also help to save us money. Um, so the better that we are about managing our food and reducing our food waste, the less we're going to have to spend on our food. So that's helpful. Um, wasting food also wastes money. So that's one thing that we can look for. I mean, the, the biggest thing though is that it's wasteful, right? Whatever we throw out has to go somewhere. So all of our food waste is going to go to landfills. It's going to take up space in the landfills. It's eventually going to break down, but that kind of decomposition of our food waste in a landfill is going to produce greenhouse gases like methane. So that's something that we want to be mindful of that is an interesting thing to think about too, in terms of when we've talked about composting and that sort of thing, we can talk about uh, at some point why composting is different than just sending our food waste to a landfill and how that makes a difference. But there's also a lot that goes into producing our food, right? So the environmental impacts don't just have to do with the what happens at the landfill. It's all of the water, which we've talked about before, and the chemicals in the land that go into producing our food that we need to think about that the more food we waste, the more of those things we're going to take up. Yeah, I, you've hit on basically all of the big points. We need to make sure that we're reducing the amount of stuff that goes into our landfills, and that does have an impact on our carbon emissions. To give you an idea, about 8% of our carbon emissions can actually be attributed to food waste. I never really liked this comparison, but basically all the sources I looked at said, like, if it, food waste was a country, it would be the <laughs> third largest country in the world as far as yeah. uh, carbon emissions go. And I'm always like, so did you subtract the food waste carbon emissions from each of the other countries to make that work? <laughs> like, I don't understand right. that calculation, yeah. you know? Um, but behind, I guess, the US and China, food waste is like the one of the big ones. And that partially has to do with all of those production inputs, things like water and chemical and land use change that we've talked about, especially in our episode about beef, if you want to uh, hear a little bit more about some of those impacts, but also because of the methane that's produced when it's breaking down. So it is a really big climate issue. Also, the when we lose food in the process, like when we're talking about food waste, we're talking about perfectly edible food. That is something that could be addressed to help solve some of our world's hunger problems. We actually produce yeah. enough food, which we've talked about in the episode about beef, to feed everybody. And reducing food waste is one of the ways to uh, potentially redirect things into that way. So we'll talk a little bit about that, but we're not going to focus on it today because I think food justice is a really complicated issue that I don't want to not do properly. For sure. Um, and like you said, saving money, a 2013 study from Harvard estimated that families in the U.S. waste between $1,365 and $2,275 a year in food waste. Oh my gosh. So basically like they were talking wow. about, right. So, um, we're going to talk a little bit more about the numbers, but obviously that's not for a single person living at home, but that's a chunk of change right there. Yeah. And for each of us, it's a pretty big chunk of change. Even a single person living alone, they were estimating over $300 in food waste every year. So yeah, it hurts your, your stomach wallet portion yeah. of your body, right? Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Um, so obviously food goes through a supply chain. It's not just the producers. It's not just the consumers who are responsible for food waste it happens throughout the cycle. It really depends on what part of the world you live in on what part of the cycle is really the biggest part, portion of it. So this first part of, uh, first episode, we're going to talk a little bit about the food production element. Um, so 
impacts from food production. Again, we talked about it in beef. 50% of our habitable land, so stuff that humans could live in, we're not talking about the desert or the Arctic, but habitable land for humans is taken up by food production. That includes the crops it takes to feed us, the crops we use to feed livestock, and then space for the livestock themselves. In the U.S., you can add about 15.7% of our energy and 80% of our freshwater use. And actually, about 19% of the fertilizer that goes onto our crops fertilizes food that will never be eaten. Oh, man. And 25% of our freshwater consumption goes to food that will never be eaten. So that's uh, impacts a lot of different things. Yeah. The FAO, uh, which it works with the UN, they estimate that food waste on a global scale, about a third of the food that we produce uh, is food waste at the end, or at least food loss. Uh, and in the US, it's much larger number. It's at about 40%, according to the NRDC. 40% of our food is lost to food waste. Yes. So if you're bringing wow, home- Wow, I didn't realize the numbers were that big. It's wow. crazy. If you were bringing home five bags of groceries, imagine just like leaving two. Just right. being like, nah. <laughs> nah, I don't need good. those. Just paid for them. Right. Don't need them. <laughs> exactly. Wow. Which is crazy. And, and like I said, the huge part of our carbon emissions. Now there are different definitions in here. We have- food loss versus food waste. So I'm going to read okay. the FAO definitions of them. Food loss is any food that is discarded, incinerated, or otherwise disposed of along the food chain from the harvest slaughter catch, but excluding the retail level and does not uh, enter the, the food chain on any other uh, part. So basically like this would be discarding edible produce and then not turning it into animal feed, for example, um, along okay. that process. Um, food waste is the decrease in quality or quantity of food resulting from decisions and actions uh, by retailers, food providers, and consumers. So us, restaurants, um, and then the supermarket as well. These are really slippery definitions that really change depending upon who you're talking about. So today we're just, I'm going to use the word food waste a lot because it is waste in a lot of ways. Um, but there are some different definitions. And if you look at different sources, you're going to get different statistics depending on how they decide to define those two different terms. Does that okay. Make sense? So I think so, but based on those definitions that you just gave today, we're mostly talking about food loss as defined in that definition, even though you'll hear us say food waste. Yes. Is that correct? Yes. Thank you for clarifying that. So again, very slippery definitions, but now that it's early in the supply chain, this is food that is lost because we did like specifically, we didn't waste it. Right. Um, and it's lost for a lot of reasons. I did exclude seafood on this because I felt like the terminology that was being used. Like there was a lot of discussion about bycatch and things like that, that I didn't really feel confident talking about seafood, um, and where food loss happens along the supply chain on fishing boats. Mm -hmm. Um, but we are going to talk about land-based meat and about, okay. um, about fruits and veggies, which is actually yeah. where most of the data we have is. Right. Okay. That's what I was going to say. It's, it's interesting to me. And I don't know why this is. I guess it's just because what you it's what you hear about most. When I think about food waste, I think about produce. I don't yeah. even think about meat at all, but I guess it's you it, all of its food and we waste all different kinds of things. So. All of its food and we waste all of it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, let's start where food normally starts, which is on the farm. 
Sarah, have you ever grown your own food? Does anyone in your family grow their own food? Not me personally. We have had gardens. So my mom has had gardens of varying sizes and grown different things, just like uh, cucumbers, tomatoes. We had raspberry bushes for a while, that sort of thing. I tried to have a tomato plant for a while (laughs) when I was living in Florida. It didn't last very long. I just, I I can't grow things. Uh, So, but that, yeah, that's about the extent of it for me. So, okay. You've, but you've grown up around people growing things and you've had your own issues with your tomatoes, right? Sure. Yeah. I, My one tomato you're one tomato plant. You know, I love growing food. I yes. feel it's just like the most satisfying thing. Cause I don't think so much about like the fertilizer and pesticides going into the industrial farms and the monoculture mm-hmm. and the habitat change. Like, no, it was, it was lawn in my backyard and now it's a food garden. Yeah. Um, so I love doing that and I'm sure we'll do an episode about that, but, um, I'm waiting for it. I'm okay, waiting for you to yeah. teach me how to garden. <laughs> I'll get there. But I wanted to talk about this cause it, it does relate to that a little bit. So, um, if you've ever gardened before, you know, that you come across all sorts of issues. So like we were growing collards and then they got eaten by bugs. Mm-hmm. Um, or when I, I grew tomatoes, I love growing tomatoes. Cause there's so many different kinds of heirloom tomatoes out there versus like the three types you're going to get at the grocery store, mm-hmm. but they're never going to turn out perfect. Like if you've ever grown tomatoes before, you're probably going to see them crack or get what we call blossom end rot, which means there's portions of that plant that is, uh, not cosmetically nice. Um, Mm -hmm. and you're also going to lose a certain amount to just diseases in the elements. So when farmers are planting their crops, they overplant their crops, right? Like they're, if they're planning on harvesting 10 fields of crops, then they're going to plant more than 10 fields of crops because they know that some of it's going to be lost to diseases and to pests and things like that. So we're actually not going to talk about like the fact that a bug ate a plant and you can't do it. That's not actually considered food loss. That's just like loss in the production, but it's not considered food loss at all. Um, we're talking about food that is good to eat. That is not part of our food chain and starting on the farm. There's a couple reasons why people might not harvest food. So Sarah, what would be some reasons that farmers might choose not to harvest food that they might choose not to, yeah. um, I suppose there's maybe supply and demand issues maybe. So if they have a crop of something that isn't going to make them enough money, maybe to make it worthwhile uh, for them to harvest and try to sell perhaps. And that would be the biggest thing that I would think of is that if it just wouldn't be valuable in order for them to do it, um, as far as what might make that happen, I mean, either the type of produce or like you were just talking about that it's not going to be considered quote unquote good enough um, because of the way it looks or something like that to be able to sell it. Yeah. Those imperfections in food are a big portion of it. Um, so I guess I never thought about that from that standpoint. I thought that that might be more of a retailer decision that this doesn't look good enough for me to sell, but I guess it would, it could start further back than that. Yeah. I never thought about that. Yeah. So we're going to talk about this really fascinating study that I found. Um, but they were talking about in this study, 
that it really is a farm by farm and then a retailer by retailer basis. The farmers know that a retailer is not going to accept food that is imperfect. So, um, so yeah, there's that there's inefficiencies, of course, in the harvesting process as well. Like things are going to be left behind, but there's a a lot of factors that complicate things. So in a, a world where all your crops are perfect and in good condition, you actually have to weigh the cost of labor versus the cost of, and, and processing and harvesting and transporting versus how much you're going to be paid for it. So obviously like other commodities, the prices on food do change. And so the farmers intend to harvest all the crops, but if they find that like the price of cantaloupe, for example, mm-hmm. is too low, they might have to, to make the decision to let it sit in the field. Like right. it doesn't make financial sense. Perfectly good food sitting in the field that's so hard though. I mean, they don't like it. They freaking right. and hate that. Yeah. <laughs> like that's, that's a loss to them too. Cause they thought they were going to make money off of it, but the market right. conditions weren't right. And so they weren't able to do it. Also in the U S we actually have a labor shortage, um, for food crops. And that's been something that's been a problem for a pretty long time. Um, and we're not going to go too deep into this, but basically it, it, it's partially an immigration policy issue. So I have worked in a garden center my whole life, and I know that we oftentimes have issues finding Americans to want to do physically difficult labor at the prices that people are willing to pay, basically. Mm -hmm. And even when you increase pay, a lot of people in the U.S. just don't want to do that work. It's hard work to mm-hmm. harvest crops, to garden, to landscape, things like that. And in uh, the U.S., 73% of our agricultural workers working in the U.S. were born outside of the U.S. And actually, many of them are undocumented and have been in the States for a really long time. And so when we roll back a lot of those immigration policies, because there is a legal system where you can have migrant workers come in from outside the U.S. to harvest food, that system is actually way too small. And that's something that is just like not a political thing. It's just, it's too small for, for what the Mm -hmm. demand is. And so some farmers literally can't find people willing to do this work. And again, this food ends up sitting in the field rotting. So if you want to learn more about that, there's a website called www.fwd.us, which is a bipartisan policy group trying to address this issue. And it's a good uh, reminder that environmentalism covers and crosses paths with all the other policy issues that we talk about in the U.S. So that's something to think about. If you're like, I want to address food waste, we actually also have to address immigration. Now, I would also Mm -hmm. argue that we if you're, you're, <laughs> you have to think about the livelihoods also of those people. Like, I, I hope your priorities aren't like food waste first and then like <laughs> livelihood yeah. of people, but like, yeah. you know, those things are interconnected. So there's a labor shortage for it. There's, um, oftentimes conditions that it doesn't benefit the farmer to harvest. Uh, for example, for that market conditions, a really obvious one, COVID when COVID hit, you closed all the restaurants and you closed all the schools, farmers poured 3.7 millions of gallons of milk into their fields instead of, because there's no kids at school to drink the milk. Mm -hmm. So things like that happen all the time at micro levels. That's just one example of a really big one. 
Yeah. Um, and then yes, the blemishes are also an issue as well. So there was a 2019 study that measured food loss on over 30 farms in California, looking at over 20 different types of crops that were all collected by hand. And I've read this study twice over, <laughs> but some quick notes about this, because this is where I got a lot of this information. Um, I thought the sample size was really small. Like I was like 30 farms, only right crops that were harvested by hand. What about the machine crops? And they pointed out that estimates for food and veggie, like crop loss in Europe in the past have been drawn up from just three crops. Like, oh. just like they're like, oh, carrots, onions. And then I forget what the other one is. Like how, what, how much do we lose? And those were from all grower surveys. So they basically like emailed the farmers and said, how, how much are you losing? And the farmers aren't necessarily, they're not incentivized to lie about it, but they found out in the study because they did actual surveys with samples that farmers are really bad at estimating. They're just, not, <laughs> they're just really bad at figuring out how much food is actually lost at it. They're just, it's not something that they're really good at. Some people, they, they said like the median, I think they were off by like 150%. So like it, they're just wildly bad at, at guessing. Um, they measured the hand-picked crops because they have the most room for improvement. So for example, when you machine harvest corn, for example, and then you sort it at the factory when you're processing it, the stuff that's imperfect then goes to things like animal feed or biofuel or, okay. or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, Hand-picked crops, because of that labor element, you are, as a person, making a decision in the field of whether or not you want to pull this particular tomato off the vine or whatever. I don't remember exactly what crop they were looking at, things like cantaloupes. And so as the person picking it, you're going to be like, well, not this cantaloupe, it's an ugly cantaloupe. And then you just leave it. Um, there's no like backup system for someone to come by and be like, this is great for cantaloupe juice or whatever thing that they would want to use it for instead. Like they just only have the time to go through and pick out the things. So they were talking about how this mm -hmm. is a really great way for food waste to be addressed is looking at these particular crops. Farmers don't like losses either because it costs them time and resources and farmers in the study were really generous with their time. And it was a really expensive study to do because they like had to come up with measures for each type of crop to show like, okay, this is what an acceptable tomato, this is what like an ugly tomato looks like versus uh -huh. a tomato that's diseased and inedible. But then they had to do it for like artichokes and romaine hearts and like everything. Right. And, and then basically what I gathered from it is that measuring food waste or food loss, at least on farms is basically impossible. <laughs> Because they're talking about like romaine leaves, for example, like when you're harvesting romaine hearts, they like pull all of the leaves on the outside, leave them in the field. They have like, they desiccate very quickly. And, and so you can't like weigh that because it lost water weight compared to what it was before. So it's just very difficult to get into the nitty gritty of everything. Yeah. And this is way too expensive to replicate across really, really large sample sizes. But um, they point out that there's basically no one size fits all solution, but some cool suggestions that they had were having um, at the retail level, basically once it gets to the supermarket, having a discount bin for imperfect foods. So like being mm -hmm. like, yeah, we'll accept them. We're just going to sell them at a lower rate and we'll pay you at a lower rate, but it's still enough to be Better worth picking. Yeah. yeah. Um, or just incentivize consumers to buy crops that have been overproduced for the year. So if they know that, Hey, there's a lot of strawberries instead of trying to 
decrease the price of strawberries so that somebody doesn't want to pick them out of their field. They just try and advertise strawberries more, you know, try and yeah. increase the demand instead of decreasing yeah. the price. So I thought those were really interesting. So it's kind of, I, I, I'm kind of obsessed with this study <laughs> um, and it was actually partially funded by the world wildlife foundation, which I thought was really interesting. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah. because it's about the environment in a very like tangential way. It's all connected, all though, connected for real. So talked about fruits and veggies. You mentioned meat, Sarah, right? Yeah. That I, I just, it's not something that I usually think about with food waste. So I'm excited and interested to talk about this. Yeah. So, um, the food waste, the, the food loss on the farm level is a lot lower than I, it is. Yeah. That's yeah. what I would have thought. Cause it's not like, I don't <laughs> I mean, you're not growing cows on the farm. Right. Oh, I decided not I to pick that one today. Yeah, like this cow looks a little, I don't know. But. Right. Um, so like <laughs> there's not a lot of waste on food loss on farms. It's, it's further down in the, um, the, the stream that we see a lot more waste for meat. Sure. Um, according to a, a very aggressive FAO <laughs> food waste infographic. <laughs> like it, it was like food waste hurts us all and kills the planet. And I'm like, you're right. <laughs> this okay, is a lot. <laughs> um, 20% of meat is lost as, as waste. So, um, okay. Now that's compared to over 40% of vegetables, like fruits and veggies are more at like 45 to 48%. Um, but that's still a lot. And on the, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask, and maybe you're going to talk about this and I'm jumping ahead, but all right, so is this, I'm still not quite picturing where the loss in the supply chain comes from. Is this if like they discover that meat has been, because I would assume if there was like a disease process or something like that with the meat, that that wouldn't again count as food loss, similar to how a diseased well, tomato wouldn't, correct. but if it's been like I don't know if bruised is the wrong word, but like if there's just been some damage, some like structural damage to the meat, is that what we're talking about with food loss? Uh, a little bit on this. Yeah, that honestly, that statistic's probably not a, the right place to put it. But basically within the supply chain for meat, the things we have to worry about are livestock injury and mortality on okay. ground. So like if, I don't know, they step in a hole and break their leg and they mm -hmm. have to be put down, they're not processed. Um, and yeah. they can also be injured. Okay. So injured on the one, okay. right. Or injured on their way to the slaughterhouse facility. That's yeah. another place where you can have loss. The, uh, on milk, there's like a, I guess some diseases that cows can get that reduces milk output. So that's considered mm -hmm. food loss basically. Okay. So basically, yeah, basically like if the, the cow has a disease that makes it the milk still edible, but it like impacts their ability to produce milk that's mm -hmm. considered food loss on there. So that's okay. interesting. 20% of milk and dairy products are wasted as well. And here in the U S and North America, that is much higher percentage comes from things like consumers. So in other okay. countries where they don't have good refrigerator systems, that is going to be lost higher up in the production. So for example, if like you solder meat and then you don't have a good refrigeration system or transport system to get it to market, then it's, you're going to have much higher rates of food loss, um, in other parts of the country. So, um, food loss and waste is occurs everywhere and is basically inevitable. Like 
we are going to waste things. We are imperfect. The processes we use are imperfect, but it happens in different parts of the supply chain and it depends on the part of the world you're in. So in all parts of Africa, as well as Southeast Asia and Latin America, we have much higher losses right after harvest rather than when it actually got to consumers. So that can be explained by higher temps and humidities in those areas, as well as less developed refrigeration and infrastructure systems. And so if you are living in Africa and you happen to be listening to this podcast and you get to episode two of this podcast series and you're like, this doesn't really apply to me so much. You're right. Like it's probably doesn't apply to you quite as much on the consumer end because a lot more of your food waste is happening up higher in the supply chain because of things that have to do for infrastructure. And so if you're listening from those areas, hi, welcome international listeners. But, uh, th- that's something to push more for our policy end rather than being able to do yourself. But there's some cool technology that's happening where, um, there is a bag that was invented by Purdue university way to go boiler up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a triple sealed and hermetically sealed bag. So basically if a bug gets in there, instead of reproducing and destroying the crops, um, it dies of lack of oxygen and that helps protect a lot of the harvest, which is especially (laughs) important for things like wheat and cereal products. Cooling is an extremely energy intensive process, but there are some actually like ancient ways of doing it. There's like nested pots. I saw this recently in the news and basically a website I went to said every couple of years, someone claims to have reinvented this process. (laughs) but it's called a zero pot. And basically there's two pots nested inside each other and you put the food inside the little pot. And then in between the two pot sizes, you put wet sand and the evaporative process for that cools it down, not refrigerator level wise, mm-hmm. but in a way that definitely um, can extend the life of the food for an extra couple of days. And so they're starting to implement that a little bit more widely as well. So in Places like Africa and Latin America, we talked about the food waste tends to be higher in what we're considering basically this first episode, um, higher up in, in the food chain. That's not really what I mean. Cause we talk about biology. It's not the food chain. It's not the, the web. It's the food supply production chain. chain. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. I got you. Um, but in North America, Oceania, industrialized Asia and Europe, much higher rates happen in the consumption portion of the food chain. So we're talking about the supermarket, uh, in the, in this particular section, before we get to episode two, when we talk about it on our end. Um, but basically at the supermarket, there's a couple of ways that food waste is sort of built into the process. First of all, obviously like stores don't want it to be like, someone takes something off the shelf and now it's gone. Like when you want go to the grocery store, you want a fully stocked grocery store. Mm -hmm. You don't want just because like, right. Somebody else took all of the strawberries today. So now I can only get grapes or whatever, you know? Yeah. Right. And there's a psychological component as well that like, if you see the last banana (laughs) sitting on the thing that you make the assumption that you cannot eat this banana. Yeah. Everyone else rejected the banana for a reason (laughs) and you're not going to be the fool to eat the bad banana. 
<laughs> like it's not the why same are thing we like that it's true I, I don't know but there was a, a farmer at a farmer's market talking about it in a video I was watching for this episode where he was like yeah if I had one bunch of Swiss chard left it would sit there for an hour mm. but if I had 30 bunches of Swiss chard I would sell 25 in that hour yeah and it's the psychological thing that we have made the assumption that that's bad now when it's packaged I feel like we don't have that same sort of thing yeah right like it, when it's packaged it almost feels like the opposite that you're like, oh, there's one left. I have to get it before somebody else does. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was thinking about that because I, I think probably the first time a lot of us in the U S have experienced what we would consider a shortage of items is when we were in the middle of not the middle, but like the beginning of the pandemic and everyone was panic buying things. And we were like, where can I get my toilet paper? And you were just excited to like pull <laughs> anything that has a shelf life off yeah. of the, the shelves. Um, but we don't do the same thing with produce. We want to know what's wrong with that apple or whatever the reason someone else left it behind. So they purposely will stack like bins much, much higher with, uh, items to try and, and pile on that Mm -hmm. psychological component with us. Um, and we actually, I was talking to my dad about this. We sell gourds at, um, the garden center when it comes to fall and he actually bought crates that have false bottoms in them. So it looks like it's a There's huge more, yeah. crate full of gourds. Yeah. But he was mentioning like storing produce like that is actually not good for the produce either because it invites things like mold and mm-hmm. the amount of weight on top of the things in the bottom. They tend to get squished and scratched and bruised a lot more easily. So that's actually one way that supermarkets can help is to have fake bins basically where you're like, yes, there's so many apples, but really like it only goes down like one layer deep underneath your visible layer. And that should help reduce that. But like food, food places will put that into the, like, basically it's in the business plan that they'll buy more than they know that they need just to keep supply looking high, basically. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. And I mean, like we all buy into that basically, yeah. like we talked about, we don't, we don't want to be like, well, there's just enough for me here today. Right. And <laughs> I want to know there's more than right. Enough. And I feel like it would be hard to, as if you were like the store manager or whatever, because you, you don't want to run out of things and have people get mad at you right. for running out of things, you know? So I, I imagine that that's a tough thing, but yeah, it's, that's the, the using like the false bottoms and the, uh, for the bins, that seems like a good, a good place to start anyway. It's a good place to start. Another way they want to basically with, especially with produce, you want to turn it over very mm-hmm. quickly. Like you don't want it to sit there for very long. So they encourage buyers to basically overbuy by doing buy one, get one free sort of mm-hmm. sales on produce. And so you will see a lot of that when you go to the grocery store in the U S is a lot of deals that you got to get your hands on so you can try and move that product in bigger quantities off the shelf than just like get someone to choose the apple over the banana. You wanted them to choose buying two apples over buying one apple. So those things are an issue. Also food waste is basically built into the system as well through expiration dates. Mm -hmm. And we're going to talk about them, uh, in the next half of the episode, but a lot of places, even though actually in the U.S. there are federal protections, I think it's called like the Good Samaritan Food Act or something like that, Food Donation Act, where if you donate expired food that you aren't legally culpable if something happens down okay. the road. And we'll talk about why in the next episode. But 
still, even though that's a law, some people are a little skeptical that they're still going to get in trouble for donating expired food. And there's also a component of it is like, if I I don't want to eat it, yeah. Should I give it away to somebody else? Like that? Exactly. Right. Like, are they second class citizens by getting our expired food? Totally makes sense. Apparently, Trader Joe's, and it could vary by store, but according to one worker's experience, they actually will pull things before their expiration date to donate them to try and reduce that food waste to direct them away before having to throw things away. Exactly. Um, So the supermarket definitely is a way wasteful portion of it, especially the way that we formulate them these days. But a lot of our waste happens at the consumer level. So we're going to talk about that in next week's episode. But also Sarah and I are going to talk about it in two minutes. So <laughs> <with each other. laughs> awesome. The illusion of time. Yeah. Well, thank you, Casey. That was really interesting for me. And I do mostly think about food waste from the consumer standpoint. So that was a good, uh, an enlightening peek at higher up on the food supply chain to think about those things. So thanks for sharing. Yeah. We'll see you next week for another episode, part two of a little greeners episode on food waste. Thanks everyone.